3: Thursday morning, the 23rd of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Yesterday, the Irish Times reported that a supermarket in Donegal has seen its overall sales increase by 37%. It follows a significant expansion of the store. But, and here's the curious bit, while overall sales are up by 37%, alcohol sales are down by 13%. Journalist Shauna Bowers offers a very probable explanation for such a dramatic fall in alcohol sales and no, it's not because people are drinking less, it is because people are crossing the border to buy much cheaper alcohol. And it's not just traders in Donegal or along the border who are seeing their trade go across the border and sales going to traders operating in the north. Shauna Bowers travelled to Jonesboro. There she found people from far-flung places like Carlow, Wexford and Ruscommon shopping in the first and last off-licence. The owner, Seamus McNamee, told the Irish Times that since the introduction of minimum unit pricing in the South, there's been a surge in alcohol sales there. Business, he says, is up by between 30 and 40%. He says it used to take three or four weeks to sell a pallet of beer. But since minimum pricing was brought in in the South, he's selling three to four pallets of Coors or Budweiser a week in Jonesboro. People are buying in bulk, he says. And maybe that's no great surprise when you look at his outdoor display board. It compares his prices in Jonesboro to prices in a supermarket in Dundalk. And it says you'll save almost €15 Euro on just one bottle of gin. That's if you buy that bottle in Jonesborough, of course, a 15-minute drive from Dundalk. People are arriving with shopping lists and they're spending between €200 to €400 on average, but up to between €2,000 or €3,000 on occasion. And you might be wondering how much you can save by spending €3,000 on booze in the north. Well, if you spent it all on that brand of gin that you can get for forty-five euro in Jonesboro instead of paying sixty euro in Dundalk, you'd save a whopping seven hundred and fifty euro. Spending three thousand euro instead of three thousand seven hundred and fifty euro. For exactly the same product. Let's speak to Una McKinney who's the Head of Communications and Advocacy with Alcohol Action Ireland and Peter Fitzpatrick who's an independent TD for Loud and East Mead. Good morning to both of you and thank you for joining us this morning once again. Peter Fitzpatrick, is this a case of a hate to say I told you so because you did tell us so. This is exactly what you said was going to happen.
4: Michael, uh, I've seen it happen in the early 2000s. I've seen it happen in all my life, Michael. But at the end of the day, Michael is. Uh, uh, I was on the health committee back in in 2013 when this came up before the, the doctors, and as far as Michael, like, like uh, uh, I do agree, Michael, like uh, I, I think what the government done uh, introducing legislation back then. I think they've done the right thing there at the moment, is because uh, as you know, Michael, I'm big into health, and like we, we talked in your program there this week about the Navan Hospital, about the downgrade of the Navan Hospital, and if you look at Michael, 25 of percent of people that uh, that that uh, comes in front of the hospital. Is is uh, alcohol related is uh, uh, pollen, and back in 2013 uh, the government was working very very closely with Northern Ireland and we we're hoping together the, the the North and the South will work together simultaneously to get this uh, minimum price in. As you know, yourself, Michael, things have changed drastically over the last number of years between the North and the South, and uh, like, like 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 I can't I can't blame people for going into the North, Michael, if, if it's that big of a difference in price. But I will be honest, Michael, as a uh, uh, I, I think what we done just minimum minimum unit price to help protect people's health. Like like my consistency mm. office, Michael, the amount of people come to my office at the moment is. They've been home and they've been getting bed up by the husband or whatever. At the moment is mm-hmm. the people coming in and they said they can't get they can't get a bed in the hospital because the husband has a heart okay. attack or liver attack. Yeah. No, and, and I no, and I understand and no, I
3: understand your position, no, position on that, but know, but but, you know, but you know, let me interrupt, don't interrupt don't for a mind. second, Peter, because I'm confused at the same time. I do understand your position, uh, and I know uh, it's a, a position uh, that uh, you're very p- uh, passionate about and that you're teetotal yourself. You've uh, never been a, a drinker, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Did you not say that minimum unit pricing should not be introduced in the republic until it happened in tandem with the north, or else it wouldn't solve the problem because people would just travel north and avail of the bargains.
4: Mike, I did say that, Michael, and I stand by that, there, Michael. Right? And
3: that is what's uh, happening, obviously.
4: Yeah. Michael, I, I agree with you, Michael. I'd I, I, I be honest, Michael. When I knew I was coming to your program this morning, I took a wee spin to the ten last night, shouldn't dark, and and the amount of off licences has closed in the last few months. It, it's been unreal. Like those those family businesses have been hit, been in the door for the last thirty or forty years. Mm. And the close and the doors, and I'm and, and, and not trying to be smart, but uh, things being highlighted... Like, and, and,
3: and that's the uh, point, is it not? Like, I mean, people are still beating up their wives or ending up in emergency with alcohol problems or liver disease or whatever the case may be, because it's not that they're drinking less, it's just that they're getting the drink somewhere else, that traders somewhere else are getting the business, and indeed, the revenue is going to a different jurisdiction. Uh, it, it's the British government, if you like, who, who are, are winning out of this decision that was made in the South. Well, Michael, uh, back in back
4: in 2018, we know Scotland. Scotland was the first uh, European country to introduce a minimum unit price, and their consumption dropped by eight percent. Michael, Michael, uh, Michael, I'm not going to argue this long because you are two hundred percent right, Michael. Is. And, I, and 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 the like the amount of people that is travelling across the border and buying alcohol is on me. But as I said to you, Michael, is uh, like uh, uh, I, I trust a lot of people at the moment, and they, uh, like, you know. Even you look at the pub trade, for example, there at the moment, mm. min- the minimum unit price doesn't interfere with, with, with pubs, clubs or restaurants and that there at the moment. is And in fairness, Michael, the pub trade you look at in my area at the moment is, yeah, you go into a pub in a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, there's nobody in it whatsoever. So pe- people just seem to be consuming uh, alcohol uh, in, in these stations uh, during the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And even the, the other pubs are not even bothered opening up. Uh, like uh, mm. uh, the last thing we want to do, Michael, is to see cheap drink there at the moment. Is and, and, yeah. and I, do, I do, I do. But believe, if you can I get it fifteen
3: she- minutes up the road, uh, uh, it's well. a different day's work. Let me go to Una McKinney, who's uh, on the line, because you said that this wouldn't happen, or uh, it wouldn't happen in, in any great uh, amount. But they're being run off their feet in Jonesbury it seems, and that's just the experience of one license, a one-off license.
5: Yeah. Good morning, Michael, and good morning, you Patrick. Um, I think what, what we're seeing. Uh, is a report, yes, a report by a journalist in in a newspaper where they have gone to a man who sells alcohol in um, Jonesborough whose business is to sell alcohol to people in the South. And, of course, it's going to be sensationalised into the degree in which it has been degreed. Um, But what I would say is that we just don't know what level of cross-border trade is taking place. We do have anecdotal Mm -hmm. evidence, like the man, as you said, from Donegal. If you read the quote from the man in the supermarket in Donegal, he says that people won't buy alcohol in the supermarket, and yet he says sales are down 13%. Now, that means he's held on to 87% of his market. So it's not that he's not selling alcohol, it's that he's selling less alcohol. And you may be right, it may be that people in Donegal are crossing to dairy, To buy alcohol, but we don't know. And the answer to the don't know is within the cross border trade. Yeah. CSO data, which we will have to wait and see. Amazon.
3: Okay, you Standard said the story so was sensationalised, but yes. you can't argue with yes. the sandwich board outside of the shop, can you? No, no, you uh, can't. no, no. A, 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 a Monkey 47 you bottle man? of gin, 50 cent no. a litre bottle of gin, no. 60 no. euro, in, and no. the prices are in comparison to Tesco's in Dundalk, of 60 course. euro there, yes. 45 euro in the north, uh, vodka 50 okay. euro uh, in Dundalk, 42 euro in Dundalk, um, yes. another bottle of gin, 40 euro in Dundalk, 29 Nine euro in the north, uh, absolute uh, That's vodka. I think uh, thirty-seven fifty, twenty-eight eighty-three, and the list goes on but Michael, and
5: on. But Michael, here's the thing. Here's the thing. This has always been the case. People have always crossed the border to purchase alcohol. The question is, are they crossing the border to purchase more alcohol? Or indeed, are they crossing the border to purchase more clothes? Or Are they purchasing more Well, uh, there's a question. Of, there's a
3: question of the impact on business, whether it's the off-sales business in this country or the clothes retail or whatever. It'd be, it'd be uh, and we're talking about we're it'd talking, talking about at a time we're talking about a, a time where there's a, a cost of living crisis in this country. Of yes. course, people, if they want a bottle of gin, are going to drive fifteen minutes up the road to buy a bottle no, of gin. If it's, it was, if, if it's fifteen euro uh, cheaper, of course they're going to do.
5: Yes and that's what they're doing in relation to clothing and that is what they're doing in relation to groceries and that's what they do all the time that's why we spend 458 million on cross border shopping every year in Ireland and about 14% of that has traditionally been alcohol the question is which we don't know the answer to is there is there more been spent on alcohol and i would say to you is I don't know. And
3: that that doesn't matter. Right. That doesn't matter to somebody who's in business in Dundalk, as Peter Fitzpatrick pointed out, who's had to but close, de- who's had to close down their business, who's had to let their staff go because yeah, their business, you, their business has gone to somebody else.
5: Well, again, if you look at what the, in the same article, there is a quote from the National uh, Off Licence Associations who say that there has been no impact in relation to their members, and indeed that they are continue to be supportive. Of the measures that was MUP and um, so I think that there's a mixed picture here mm, well presented. Uh,
3: the, the, o- the off-license the industry, industry were very happy are to are see are it are introduced because it, it stopped supermarkets say, from selling the very cheap products
5: yeah but Peter said that there was off-license yeah. that were closed and I'm saying that the National Off-license Association is saying that they don't see any impact
3: here. no I understand so I'm, just giving, you, I'm mm.
5: just giving you a counter-argument from the official organization who represents off license. So what it, I'm saying it, is.
3: It is, is, part, it's, over- is part of the discussion, but I, I, I'm not sure that it, it, it eradicates the first argument.
5: No, no, I, I didn't suggest that it was. Okay. I'm just hmm. suggesting it provides a bit of a balance, hmm. which is what I'm trying to do in relation to our discussion, if you gave me some opportunity to actually speak, which is that cross border trade is a known factor. MUP will be introduced in Northern Ireland in due course. And what that will do when it is introduced is it will re-establish an equilibrium. That equilibrium, as we've discussed in the past, is that there's a differential of about 27%, 28% in alcohol prices. And that is what has consistently always driven alcohol purchases across the border, because it has always been cheaper. Now, what the man in Jonesboro is doing is he's simply doing what most people in business do, and that is he's afforded the opportunity so I uh, take an opportunity mm. in relation to selling more alcohol, mm. and so good luck to him. That's fine,
3: mm. Mm. but the
5: question is,
3: and where did you get that opportunity? At the
5: moment, at the
3: moment, w- where where did you, spend, you get the opportunity?
5: We spend two point seven billion euros, mm. but who, on alcohol who who gave country
3: who gave Seamus that McNamee that opportunity?
5: Less than two percent, less than two percent of that market is what we're talking about. Cross, what we know is cross border.
3: But who gave so Seamus McNamee is, that opportunity?
5: The market did. The market
3: did. No, the, the government did. The government did through the introduction of minimum unit pricing. Yeah, but, but look at... That's why he's my, able to put up a sign up outside of a shop saying was, if, you, if you buy this and Dundalk, you'll pay 15 euro more for a bottle.
5: And the man in Jonesboro probably had the same sign four months ago or six months ago, which was a little bit less. So nothing has really changed. It's just that the prices <laughs> have, have been, the gap has extended a little bit.
3: Peter Fitzpatrick.
5: But over, it was still selling the alcohol in the same fashion, in the same way to cars that were registered in Ruscommon or Longford or wherever they were coming from.
3: Peter and Fitzpatrick, do you think that much has changed? Uh, I mean, it seems pretty dramatic, the difference in the prices to me.
4: Well, Michael, two, two things have changed, Michael, I'll be honest. Michael, Michael since the minimum unit price came in down on the 4th of January, like I used to walk through the dog there seven and wait daily, night and go for walks. And and like, for the last number of years, you would see a lot of young people, especially young people, around corner areas drinking these cheap beers, right? But I will be honest, Michael. Since since the introduction of of the minimum unit price there in January, I don't see that as often. But if you, if you just look at like like people are going to North, and people are are, are buying mm. a lot more drink. But when you look at, for example, things If you look at since the minimum price is up in January, like, you can buy a can of beer for one seventy you go in uh, at the 500 milliliter uh, can of beer, you go to the same shop, you're paying 250 for a day of coke. And like, if you look at a bottle mm. of wine, you can still buy a bottle of wine for 7.40. Yeah. You can buy, buy a bottle but of But you
3: could buy a can of beer lot. for 70, 80, 90 cent, uh, or, or, or euro, as uh, the case may be. Uh, and uh, there is some evidence from Scotland that when young people aren't buying the cheap beer that you say they've stopped buying in Dundalk, that they're, they're taking drugs instead.
4: Well, there's Michael, no imp- listen, uh, I, Michael, I, I heard in your programme last week that Ireland is one of the most countries in the world for cocaine. I remember years ago, my daughter telling me, uh, I, I I get a phone call at three or four o'clock in the morning, Daddy, I can't get a taxi to come and pick me up and that day, and, and you go and you pick them up. But I remember years ago, my daughter my daughter was telling me, listen, you think alcohol is bad, we see nothing yet in the drugs. Like, the drug situation, it's, it's gone completely out of, out, of, out of control. And Michael, that's something we're going to have to work on another day. But I'm just saying, Michael, is, uh, like the, the, the drink situation there at the moment is uh, I'm fully behind the minimum unit price. But I do agree with you, Michael, is I think the timing was wrong. I think uh, back in 2013, when we were working very closely with the UK and the Northern Ireland out there, I think, you know, and as you know yourself, Michael, these, these, these meetings, Northern South, the ministerial meetings, the whole thing seems to have collapsed. You had the Brexit, you had the pandemic and everything else. But I, I think it was very, very important, especially in the island of Ireland, that the north and the site walk very very closely to together. It, it is causing big big problems at the moment, Michael. I just hope that people use their common sense at the moment, is. and I, I just hope I and I pray and I hope that people don't change from alcohol to drugs. Because Michael, we all think alcohol consumption is bad, but I tell you, there's nothing compared to drugs.
3: Eunan McKinney.
5: Yeah, no, I was just going to say that like there, is, there has been some media commentary around. Uh, a a transfer of some people yeah. in Scotland towards drugs, but actually when the evidence was was demonstrated by a message the, uh, the report from the public agency public health agency in Scotland, there is no evidence that there has been transfer of people into drugs so just to to say that point in relation to the evidence in relation to that. Um, and so I think that we're just going to have to wait and see in relation to, as I understand the, the CSO, they were supposed to do the Household Budget Survey last year, but COVID unfortunately uh, intervened in that. So we're just going to have to wait and see what is the data in relation to whether or not um, there's an increase in cross-border trade. And if that, if that level of what was, if, which is about $64 million is spent across the border on alcohol, whether that has been increased. Um, mm. So, well,
3: uh, uh, I see the uh, National Library of Medicine, National Centre for Biotechnology Information, is saying that the uh, use of drugs uh, to replace cheap alcohol could be one of the unintended consequences of introducing minimum pricing in Scotland.
5: Well, again, if you go to the Public Health Agency of Scotland, who is responsible for the Scottish mm. government's research into minimum unit pricing, which is a five-year project that they've yeah. been working on, there is no evidence of that transfer of alcohol use into
0: illicit drugs.
3: Okay, but would you be worried if that was the case? Uh, I mean... Of
5: course. Oh, yeah. The course.
3: country's awash with weed bad and bad cocaine bad. and all sorts of things. Uh, you can get it anywhere, anytime, any day. You can have it delivered yeah, to your no, door, absolutely. apparently, uh, but and, remember, and so alcohol on. alcohol
5: is a drug, too. Yeah. Alcohol is a drug, mm. too. It's a psychoactive addictive substance, and, and what we're trying to do with measures like Minimum pricing and others that we've discussed in the past yeah. is about trying to reduce the alcohol use across the whole of the drinking population and indeed mm. the target for minimum unit pricing is about an eight percent reduction across the whole of population which doesn't seem like a huge amount but over time it's quite a significant amount because okay. it will save people's lives and it will reduce the number of people as Peter said who are occupying a thousand beds in our public health system on a daily basis
6: yeah
3: okay
4: uh, is there any Michael, Michael, Michael,
5: is there, yeah just to uh,
3: conclude Peter Yeah.
4: Yeah. Michael, and you just say, Michael, there's not a day in my constituency office that we we don't get a phone call from a mother or a dad on about their children. Hmm. And the biggest problem we find now when, when our area at the moment is the amount of drug dealers that's walking from hmm. street corners... Cocaine.
3: Cocaine. Dundalk is a yeah. wash with cocaine. It, it's, oh, a, Michael, a it's very popular. It's popular.
4: It's serious, yeah, serious, yeah, Michael. yeah, yeah. Michael. it's something we're going to have to you know, look at sooner rather than
3: later. Okay, we have to leave it there. Thank you indeed both of you for joining us on the programme this morning. As always, Peter Fitzpatrick, Independent TD for Loud and East Mead. Una McKinney is the Head of Communications and Advocacy with Alcohol Action Ireland.
1: Michael Michael
3: Reed on on LMFM. Thanks to Ellen WhatsApping the programme saying, Michael, people who have a drink problem will always drink no matter what the price. But she says, I went up to the north myself and got 36 bottles for €21 and I'm not a big drinker. Thanks, Ellen, uh, for sharing that with us. Uh, We'd uh, text then from a Navin listener who says, Michael, what does it say about society when people are, are going the distance to buy alcohol. Then they crib and cry about costs like food. Uh, There's no issue with burning fuel going north to buy alcohol. Have they got their priorities mixed up? I wonder, says that caller. Uh, Joseph is in Drogheda and he says, just wondering would you really save that much uh, when you take the petrol cost into account? I I don't agree with minimum pricing. People who drink heavily will still drink heavily. Uh, They'll find the money from somewhere and it's not fair On the ordinary consumer. Thanks uh, for that. Uh, Another uh, call from somebody who says that publicans uh, might find it cheaper to buy cheap booze and off licenses in the north and sell it here. Thanks uh, Peter for that uh, particular comment and our our lines are open for you to have your say as always. Now let's talk about fuel rationing. That's a a turn of phrase that we haven't heard since the 1970s. It's on the cards and it's on the cards here according to the Irish EU Commissioner Mairead McGuinness who says Ireland has particular issues to address when it comes to energy security. The government says it has a plan in place and that doesn't mean that it'll be able to find fuel when there isn't fuel available. Let's uh, talk to Paddy Cummins who's Head of Communications with AA Ireland. A very good morning to you Paddy. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, There may be issues with gas uh, and oil. Will there be issues with petrol do you think?
7: Do I think personally? No, I don't Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, you know you can never rule anything out but uh, you know certainly I think the comments about fuel rationing for Ireland are you know a little premature. We are. We do face particular problems in Ireland, though, because of where we are and our sort of rankings in the grand scheme of things. You know, we are an island nation. Mm. We, often, we do hold our fuel reserves off the coast, uh, slightly just off the coast of Cork. And, you know, obviously in the event of there being a global issue with fuel and fuel tankers being allocated here, there and everywhere, Ireland might be slightly... Lower down the food chain, if you like about in terms of of getting fuel. but yeah. we you know at the moment we do have adequate supplies you know I, yeah. I certainly stay in touch with the people who look after these things. I talk to the people who are involved in these plans for um you know in the event of there being an issue, and for now it seems that they're there, there isn't anything necessarily to worry about. However, uh, uh, if there is to be to rationing,
3: though, the, the, the government plan would be in terms of prioritising who needs fuel most. So, like, the emergency oh, services and so on would uh, take top rank, followed by uh, truckers and that type of thing. Trade and commerce would be top of the list. Sunday drivers, top, bottom of the list.
4: Yeah, and we would be
7: in a situation, again, where, you know, almost like COVID, that you would start to see restrictions of, of movement based on the fact that, you know, you might get a certain allocation of fuel and, you know, you have to make, make do with that. Maybe there would be more um, working from home implemented and, and look, I guess, mm. you know, every cloud uh, uh, and, you know, if we were looking at it slightly positively, we do have some experience now in doing that and we are further down the road than we were pre-COVID on how to work differently and how to commute a little bit less um, and, you, you know, so there there is precedent yeah. there in mm. that, but
3: yeah, the survival of the fittest, or whatever way you want to put yeah. it, for for those at the bottom of the pegging order, uh, that if you get out there and queue, uh, you could be queuing uh, for five, six, ten hours uh, to get petrol or, or diesel. But that might be part of it as well.
7: Yeah, and look, the, the the difficulty with any of these things, and and you know, you remember from the start of COVID when it was bread or toilet roll. If if for some reason people did on any given day in Drogheda or Navin or Kells decide, oh Jesus, we better all no. go and fill the car up. Um, you know, you would be in a situation where maybe petrol stations would start running out of fuel, and that would have a panic uh, situation for for everyone as a result of that. It, at the moment, if everyone uses their fuels normally, um, Ireland has a decent enough supply. But we all we you know these comments are often made because there is a possibility, and we do have to take that in.
3: Yeah, the they're not made likely, and, and the no. other side of it is is that if we say that uh, there is uh, no problem with supply as things stand that's grand uh, and we can park all that stuff about rationing and shortages uh, to one side as a load of old baloney if you like just for a moment for uh, this part of the conversation but if there's any truth in it, a shortage of any description you are most definitely talking about a further increase in prices and therein lies the real concern I take it
7: yeah look you can take it as, as given and and, and and you know David Radker has, has said as such in the media he said look we, we don't envisage uh, an issue with supply, but pricing may go up. I, you know, certainly uh, looking at petrol, the way things are at the moment, we I wouldn't be surprised if we did start to see something in and around the two euro fifty um, a, a litre. And and diesel has also been starting to creep up again. So whereas there was a, a quite a difference between petrol and diesel recently, even diesel now is starting to come up and catch up. We usually do, we previously under normal conditions we do our fuel price surveys once a month at the moment we're doing them weekly because there are such changes and variations uh, across the country.
3: Right. I think uh, you've frightened to live daylights, da- daylights out of a lot of people there with Hopefully that. Probably uh, not. All right, Paddy, thanks indeed for joining us. Paddy Cummins, Head of Communications with AA Ireland.
1: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
3: Now, to uh, an ongoing uh, local issue uh, that was raised once again in uh, the doll yesterday by Finnegale TD for Loud and Eastmeath. Ferguson out. Minister,
8: the Taoiseach in January said to me that options were now being considered at that time to meet the concerns and needs of the families of the 23 who died in Dalgan Nursing Home in County Loud during the COVID, first COVID outbreak in appalling circumstances. We have heard nothing since from the Minister. Minister, what is the outcome? What is going to happen? And will this government be seen to act to vindicate the rights of those people? Thank you,
9: people? Deputy.
3: And the response on behalf of the Government was given by Minister Darragh O'Brien.
9: Thank you, Deputy O'Dowd. And we certainly do need to ensure that we vindicate the rights of, of, of those people. And I know you've raised this issue of Dalgan Nursing Home. Uh, previously directly with the Taoiseach. My understanding is that it's intended that the group that was set up uh, to look at this will submit their report formally to the Minister very, very shortly. Uh, I will raise it directly with them on your behalf to make sure that you're given an update. Any abuse of, of anyone, but in particular vulnerable, uh, vulnerable adults, uh, is absolutely reprehensible. And, and that's why the Taoiseach and the Minister have taken this this matter very seriously. So I'll seek an update myself Thank from you, the minister. minister for Health and Revert you
3: that's Star O'Brien. Uh, Fergus O'Dowd uh, was putting uh, that question to the Minister. Let's speak uh, to Deputy O'Dowd now. And a uh, very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for good joining time. us on uh, the programme. Uh, the response you got was uh, probably a lot more positive uh, to the responses you received on all of the other occasions that you raised this in the DAL.
8: Well, I welcome the fact that uh, Darrell O'Brien was standing in for the T shirt and his reply basically was that there's a report expected shortly so I very much welcome that uh, there will be a report what's going to be in it I don't know but if there isn't an inquiry uh, that gets to the bottom of what actually happened there and allows the families in particular the ones who have been most affected by the passing of the relatives to vindicate you know them and their desire to have the whole truth um, you know, I, it won't be acceptable to me hmm. uh, or to them. I'm sure. So, look, it's 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 progress in that we'll know soon what they're going to propose, and I obviously welcome that. Okay, but it's only the start; it's not the end hmm. of this by
3: yeah. any means. Well, you'll be looking at the recommendations, uh, and then if they'll be enacted. Um, wh- what do you know about the group itself?
8: Well, I know nothing about the group. That's 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 the point. Right. Uh, like I, I raised it with the Taoiseach, uh way back in in January. And he told me that they you know they were looking that the department was looking at options, but I've had a stone wall from the Department of Health on this issue. Uh, so that's why I'm raising with the Taoiseach. Yeah. I have a question to the Taoiseach for
3: answer. Well, my eyebrows I raised listening it. to the debate in the doll yesterday. I'm not sure if you were surprised by the response. It came as a surprise to me because I remember the Taoiseach telling you that the government was looking at, at options. I didn't know yes. that a group had been set up or, or yep. what form that group would take or what its remit would be. But apparently, according to the minister yesterday, the group was set up. It's almost finished its work and it's about to report um. to government.
8: Yes, that that is exactly what he said. So look, I I, I don't mind who the group is or who, mm. you know what the membership is, but like I, I you know I want you know I want them I want everybody to know that I will be back in the families one hundred percent. And I'm not going to obviously do other than welcome the fact that a report is on its way.
3: Oh, absolutely, yeah. But it's it is curious. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I'm just I'm just saying it's curious. I mean, I found it's it curious. curious. I'm sure I'm sure you find it curious, and I'm sure the families find it curious. Uh, that I mean, the last that was said about this uh, was uh, five months ago. Was it six months ago? That's when right. the Taoiseach yeah. said to you, "We're looking at the options." Now, six months later, we're hearing uh, the options were looked at. We set up a, a group. They've looked into it, and they're about to make a report to the minister. It, 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 it's yeah. It's it's just an unusual way to discover that this is what's been going on.
8: It is, it is Michael. I, have a, I will be expecting a written answer from the Taoiseach and the Minister for Health today on this issue. And I won't get it until after 6 o'clock, but I'll share it with you immediately mm. as, to, as to, to get more detail on this. But I suppose the good thing is that, that we will expect an outcome at least. And, you know, there are huge issues in relation, in relation to how people passed away during COVID and a yeah. number of of nursing homes, and that's what this is all about. And it also should lead to appropriate and proper changes in legislation to make nursing homes, public or private, more accountable, to give, you know, to give more powers to uh, HSE safeguarding and protection t- teams who presently don't have the right to go into private nursing homes, they can go into public mm. ones. And uh, obviously the powers that HICWA don't have to investigate specific complaints, so this is a huge issue that has been there for a long, long time, and I'm determined that you know that there will mm. be changes. And I know that the Safeguarding Ireland, a very comprehensive report, has been published recently into identifying risks uh, and and having, know, having an having appropriate a proper way to deal with mm. the abuses. And as you know, there were 16,000 cases of abuse reported uh, from HSE not institution, but mm-hmm. in HSE, where the HSE rate ran um, over a five-year period. And that's a huge number yeah. of people being
3: abused. And actually. I know that you raised the question of the Alcan House uh, in tandem with that report from Safeguarding Ireland. Uh, you're hoping that there'll be an inquiry into what happened in the Algon House. The Taoiseach yeah. made it very clear uh, that that wouldn't happen. He he didn't believe it was the right approach and that goes back to January and him saying well we have to look yeah. at the options. Uh, but yep. there, there there is an odd thing about this um, which must be very difficult for the families to understand because the reason that Taoiseach said he didn't want an inquiry into it was that it would take six or seven years but here we are now two and a quarter years after the event and we're looking at a, a group about to report on it.
8: That's right. A lot of time is already lost. Yeah, well, I think the Taoiseach ruled out a commission of inquiry, but it was a commission of inquiry that looked into these cross and came up with radical proposed changes uh, and serious criticism of what happened there. Look, I I, I Mm. go to wait to see what the report says. I do know in another case, Michael, I was involved in, it was the late David Earls who died in, in very appalling circumstances in in a, in a home in Dublin, uh, it took some years to get an inquiry. Now that was led by three independent expert witnesses um, who were outside. You know, they were they weren't they weren't employed by the HSE in that capacity, and they found that they found a very a very formidable outcome, uh, which gave you know and, and gave the family closure. Mm. What we want is for the families to have closure with the truth. And that they can, you know, you know that they can, you know, let, you know, when people pass away, yeah. you need closure yeah. and they haven't closure at the moment.
3: OK, well, this is the most uh, important thing that could possibly ever be for the families yes. of yeah. the people who uh, died in House uh, 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 around Easter of 2020. Uh, and uh, I'm sure they'll be looking for some more information on this. Uh, will you come back to us uh, when you get that response from the Taoiseach, or that I, I, you have a better I understanding? But of course, Michael, of I'll come
8: back there. to this evening, and I won't uh, want to assure you, and you know anyway. Yeah. And thank you for for always, uh, you know, discussing this issue on your show with family members and other public representatives. No, we we want this to be sorted out and we want it to never happen again. And the only way we can we can do that is by getting the family to know the full truth and get closure and then make sure whatever changes are needed happen as soon as possible. That's my objective. That's, that's also other TDs in this county I want to stress that point. We're all together on this one. We all want change. And uh, I'm going to, you know, and I know we're all going to make sure that it happens. And, you know, that's our job to represent the people, to stand up for those who, you know, who who have suffered greatly and to vindicate their rights and to hold people accountable. And that's what we will do.
3: Okay, well, people will want information on what is happening or what is not happening, uh, uh, but it's the information and, uh, and that updated situation. Uh, and thank you for joining us, uh, and we look forward to you coming back to us uh, when thank that has much. been clarified. Thank you very much indeed. Fine Gael, TD for Louth and East Meath figure set out.
1: Michael Reed on LMFM.
3: Well, as you've been hearing, 91% of travellers feel disrespected by the Gardaí. This is according to the Irish Travellers Access to Justice report, which has been published this morning. The research was carried out by members of the University of Limerick. The Irish Council for Civil Liberties is calling on the government to deal with reports that travellers experience Garda harassment, threats to abuse power, Garda provocation, Gardee deliberately escalating conflict and degrading treatment during stop and search. Let's uh, speak uh, to Sinead Nolan, who's uh, the communications manager for the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. And a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning, Sinead. Uh, What we're reading is very disturbing and unacceptable to a large degree, particularly the idea that the Gardaí are racial profiling uh, when it comes uh, to the Traveller community.
10: Yeah, thanks for having us on Michael and I very much agree with you that it's very upsetting and distressing to read the information in the report this morning. Um, When it comes to racial profiling uh, so the report is actually compiled by a five person research team three of those people are Travellers themselves and they spoke to a huge proportion of the traveller community in the duration of this research. So um, 59% of travellers said that they had been... that they felt that the reason that they had been stopped and searched recently was because they were a traveller. And ICCL has been calling for a long time for ethnicity to be recorded during stop and search. So um, this report uh, reports on traveller perceptions of racial profiling, but we need to know the facts we need to know uh which communities if any are being targeted um for stop and searches more than other communities so we mm. would we would be reiterating a long standing call of ours um for et- ethnicity to be recorded during stop and search and we would be uh we would be calling for that to be uh, applied to all guard operations because we see in this report as well that travelers are also subjected to um much higher levels of home raids which is a very worrying uh, piece in this report as well.
3: Mm, And quite often without warrants.
10: Yeah, so 11% of the people who said that they had been present during a Garda home raid uh, of the traveller community uh, said that there was uh, only 11% said that there was a warrant uh, presented Um, And it was almost half of all travellers who said that they had experienced uh, a home raid or been present during a Garda home raid. That's something I think that no person in the settled community uh, can Mm. relate to, or or very few of us uh, will be able to to ever think of a time when Garda might have entered our home uh, without a warrant and without being invited in. Mm. So it really does bring home uh, the difference in in how... uh, the two communities experience policing, mm. um, and it's not just uh, this report. Really shows that it's not just uh, Gardaí, um that travellers uh, experience this kind of, um, let's say, discriminatory uh, attitudes from. It's also uh, the judiciary. So. Um, uh, Travelers also reported overt hearing overt racism from uh, the Guardi and also criminal justice professionals, uh, up to and including judges. And right. um, so, ICCL has called for mandatory anti-bias training there for, for the judiciary and for gardi Mm-hmm. Um at the moment there is some voluntary anti-bias training but uh, for it to be really effective... Does
3: it, do, does, need, does it need further examination? Uh, is it possible that this is a, a subjective rather than an objective view?
10: Um, do you mean in the report? Yeah. Um, I mean it, it definitely needs further investigation. I mean what the report is presenting here is research with travellers. So mm-hmm. this is what travellers are reporting. Uh, but any society needs to take these kind of statistics very, very seriously. Yeah.
3: And some of the statistics are impossible to argue with, uh, and there's no doubt about that. I, I wonder how many people listening to us have been stopped by a member of Angarda Shia Kana as they're walking down the street going about their own business. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably very few, um, mm-hmm. uh, certainly uh, not since uh, they went into adulthood, uh, but four fifths of travellers say that that's happened to them at least once in the last five years.
10: Yeah, and and fifty nine percent of those will say that it was because they were a traveller. So, I mean, you would expect that if a guard stops you and asks uh, to search you, that they might have a reasonable belief that you are a suspect of a crime or you know something mm. like that. But fifty nine percent of the the travellers who responded to this research said that. Um, felt that it was because they were a traveller. And when you dig into the research, it's quite clear that they have good reason for that. For example, uh, maybe they're near a halting site or uh, the guard that might just know that they're a traveller um, or the guard that has a ra- reputation of um, mm. shopping travellers. So um, while while it is subjective, uh, the statistics are so worrying that, that that certainly there needs to be further Uh, investigation and further addressing of these
3: these issues. Uh, And this comes uh, on uh, the photo of calls uh, for traveller-specific mental health uh, policies to be put in place uh, and those policies necessary specifically for travellers because of how uh, they're being crushed uh, and humiliated and degraded uh, in almost everything that they do in life.
10: Yeah, indeed. And when you, when you do look at these this report alongside the mental health crisis that has been um, reported on in recent weeks, it, it's hard to see um, how a community can withstand this kind of, what the report presents is over-policing in the circumstances we've been talking about, you know, home raids, including with children present, um, stop and searches, like this kind of, constant uh, presence of the criminal justice system but then on the other side of it under policing when travellers are victims of crime themselves so Mm. uh, especially
3: domestic domestic violence apparently
10: domestic violence but also hate crime so hate crime from presumably from members of the Mm. settled community towards them 60% of of travellers feel that that's a serious problem and 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 so that's allied to a mental health crisis where 11% of all Traveller deaths are by suicide. And in the last two weeks, the Traveller community has, has dealt with two child suicides. So, mm. you know, as a society, we, we really need to look at what the Traveller community is telling us and see what's happening and start to figure out how, how we can unpick Decades of of damage that have been done to trust between the traveller and the settled community Mm. through institutional and and societal racism.
3: Yeah, well, it's a a cultural problem, isn't it? Uh, The traveller community is a specific ethnic group uh, recognised by the state as such, Uh, but it's a group of people who, who we've lived alongside as the settled community, all of our lives. And as the settled community, we've been very prejudicial against all of our our lives. Uh, And uh, there is this endemic racism that exists uh, and this uh, assumption uh, about people because of their ethnicity that there's something wrong with them. Uh, And unless we can change that attitude, travellers are going to continue to experience these problems. Yeah, that's
10: absolutely it. I mean... There are some um, there are some pieces from the researchers in the media this morning that um, w- that would break your heart, you know, um, really just and really underlining that it's it's really the last uh, and I don't say that you know quote unquote acceptable uh, form of racism in our society. It's, it's one that really goes unchallenged um, everywhere you see it. You know, uh, people who would otherwise hold very kind of progressive and liberal uh, views. Uh, seem to find no no issue in expressing really hostile and discriminatory attitudes towards travellers. So it's something we really need to look at in ourselves. And and this morning's report shows that the criminal justice system is no different, really needs to take a long, hard look at the experiences of travellers within it and begin to, to take real action to sort it out mm. ASAP.
3: Okay. Sinead, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Sinead Nolan is uh, the communications manager for the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Now, we're going to turn our attention to our ladies' hospital in Navam once again and uh, the proposed closure of uh, the emergency department and how this was raised once again in the Dáil yesterday by A2TD for Mead West, Padder Tobin, who was... Putting it to Minister Dara O'Brien, who was taking questions on behalf of uh, the government, uh, that there's a problem in hospitals right around the country because of overcrowding, which is leading to a lot of adverse incidents.
2: Extreme incidents, Minister. These have risen from 373 cases to 579 cases. And these include death and incapacity. These are happening, Minister, simply because of the massive fact that we have overcrowding, gripping our hospitals at the moment. And why? It's because there's a lack of capacity. We've seen the number of hospital beds fall from 20,000 to 14,000 currently. And the number of ICU beds are 200 fewer than even the HSE state there should be. And try to register for a GP in counties like Mead at the moment. You can't get a GP registration for love nor money. If you do have a GP, it'll take you a fortnight to get access to an appointment with that GP. And so far this year, 400 doctors have emigrated to Australia. The health service is a disaster, it's a car crash, and it's happening under your watch at the moment. And what's the response of the HSE? The HSE says that they want to close NAVIN and A&E and five ICU beds that go with it, and send the 25,000 patients to a queue in the nearby hospitals to wait for hours for life and death treatment. You don't have to be Einstein minister to work out that the response to overcrowding is actually more capacity, not less. And the man in charge of, of the HSE, Paul Reid, is paid 411,000 euros a year. And the number of people paid more than 410,000 uh, has actually doubled in the HSE just in that short period of time. And now we hear that the government is going to give a between 10 and 15% pay increase to public servants who are earning this amount of money. Is, is there up, no level of productivity please? related to the amount of people get paid. Is there no link between the outcomes of people's work and the amount you, people Deputy, get paid in the HSE? How can you proceed with pay increases to these civil servants at a time when we have such a crisis in the health service? Minister, please.
9: Um, thank you, Deputy. Um, can I firstly say I think you do, our health workers and those who work within the HSE, a great disservice uh, by your comments here this morning, or this afternoon, excuse me, by saying that the health service is a disaster. What I'd say to you, I think you'll you'll understand, uh, Deputy Tobin, of what the health service has been through over the past two years, Uh, the incredible commitment that all our professionals, both at A&E, right the way through our wards, the backroom teams that are there, indeed the management teams, that they've had two exceptional years in trying to keep uh, our people safe and manage this country through COVID and the health response through COVID. So I think your comments here this afternoon by calling the health service a disaster are reprehensible actually and I think you should withdraw them.
3: That's the Minister for Housing who was responding to Padder Tobin on behalf of uh, the government, uh, Dara O'Brien both of course speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Now that's uh, the politics if you like of this ongoing story. Uh, We'll be speaking with uh, a local GP in just a moment.
1: Michael Reid on on LMFM
3: Now let's uh, speak uh, to Dr. Neil Maguire, who's uh, the chair of uh, the Mead Faculty of uh, the ICGP. That's the Irish College of uh, General Practitioners. Good morning to you, Dr. Maguire, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the program uh, this morning. You're advocating the closure of uh, the emergency department in Navan.
11: Yes, um, I'm. Uh, I wasn't uh, maybe seven or eight years ago when we ever had, whenever we had that big march in Navan and. Uh, uh, I, I speak uh, regularly with uh, uh, Deputy Padder Tobin, Tobin about these things, and uh, nobody could impugn his uh, integrity or indeed that of Damien English, who also tick acts with us in the faculty regularly about these things. Uh, but uh, I, I've actually uh, been converted uh, to the need for the change uh, since the time of the protest in that.
3: Okay, uh, and have you been part of the design of the change?
11: Well, I think that's, yes, that's been very important for us. Um, When it was first presented to us, it did appear like um, it was going to be an imposition and uh, a clear downgrading of our facility locally. Uh, And in fact, since that time, uh, the faculty, I have to say, we should take some credit for this. I think we managed to persuade the Ireland East Hospital Group uh, that they really needed to engage with us. And in fact, they fund um, a general practitioner, Dr. Catherine Wan from Navar, who uh, has worked assiduously on this uh, part-time uh, to sit on management groups in Navin and various members of the faculty board, that would be the, the sort of local governing body of our faculty, have been involved in different kinds of meetings, transformation meetings, local integrated care committee meetings. And over a period of about five years now, uh, we've um, actually had a very I think, strong say in what uh, Navin has evolved into. Um, And, uh, you know, so Mm. having been entirely sceptical, I have seen the good faith of the HSE.
3: Okay, but you're on the payroll, aren't you? Or at least Dr. Wan is.
11: Uh, no, I think she's relieved. I'm not on the payroll, I should say. Mm. And Dr. One, I think the arrangement is that she is paid uh, so that a locum can go into her practice for a half day a week in order to free her up to come down to the, the hospital and do this
3: important work. OK, so it, it's done uh, with the sole intention of trying to provide the best service for the people of County Meath.
11: Oh, absolutely. And one of the best things that's come out of it, really, I mean, we always have had a close working relationship Mm. with um, the the doctors in the hospital. But what has come out of it, really, is that uh, we as GPs and the hospital doctors of different uh, hues uh, now see ourselves as one body of maybe 200, 220 uh, relatively senior clinicians uh, who work together to supply the best possible service uh, to the people of the county. And, of course, we're not uh, advocating for waiting lists anywhere else or in Navin And we recognise that there are massive problems uh, with uh, EDs all over the country. uh, But that shouldn't distract us from what is necessary to provide safe care. Uh, Do
3: you believe that there are any other options?
11: Oh, the only other option, and this is the one that uh, both uh, Deputy Tobin and uh, uh, Deputy English have been... Uh, promoting uh, for a number of years is is a new regional hospital, and we really did have hopes for that back before the the, uh, currency crisis. Uh, But... uh, that is not likely to happen anytime soon. And of course, if we
3: mm. had... Any well, it was recommended happen. in 06 by Teamworks and then the, yeah. the yeah. Lennis yeah. report in 08 yeah. suggested that yeah. the location should be in County Mead. The reason it should be located in County Mead, that report uh, and the consultants behind that report said was because of the population not just of Navan, but the general catchment area. Uh, and uh, that, that would serve as many people as possible for for the four counties of what was the Northeastern Health Board region, Loudmead, kavanagh and Monan, uh, as possible, and would also service people uh, from uh, bordering counties like I- I- in Dublin. It-, it was the ideal location because of so many people who could avail of a service. So uh, is that not the counter-argument to taking away an emergency department in exactly the same location because its uh, population has only increased...
11: I, I entirely agree with you, and I think everybody in this debate, uh, whether it's the hospital management, the hospital directors, the Ireland Hospital Group, uh, politicians locally, or, or we GPs locally, it, the ideal solution is just what you've said. Mm. But if that doesn't happen, uh, we can't in the meantime stand over a sub-optimal or inadequate service.
3: But is it dangerous not to have a a service? Uh, Is this not a political decision and are people of the area not being failed politically because we have a, a situation that goes back to 2006, certainly back to 2008, where it was clear that a new hospital was needed. That report, or those reports more to the point, were put in shelves and allowed to gather dust.
11: I, I, I can't agree with you more. I, I think Navin's going to need uh, lots of new things. Um, uh, the county is, but the whole country needs a lot of new things. You know, I, I came into, started medical training in 1982. I just looked at this recently. There was almost 1.5 million less people in the country at that time. Mm. And in the 40 years that I've been around medicine, things have changed beyond recognition in terms of the complexity of people's illness the age on average of the patients availing of our services, and the kinds of things that we can now do for patients. And medicine has changed and evolved and become much more complex and technical, and, and we've had to change with it. I, I have the great honor of, of uh, succeeding uh, Dr. Michael Hayes here in Navin, who was one of the resident medical officers at Our Lady's Hospital back in the 1950s and 60s. Um, And, you know, he would not recognize what happens now to an acutely ill person uh, compared to in his day.
3: Mm. So I mean, we're and that's why we're all living longer. and Medical bacteria. science is a, a wonderful thing, oh, yeah. uh, but I, in terms of uh, the hospital, uh, Darren O'Rourke another local TD, has mm-hmm. been saying that he's been talking uh, to people who have expertise, medics, uh, mm-hmm. uh, about this, and that the belief that he's been hearing is that an extra emergency department consultant, two extra consultant surgeons, and two extra consultant anesthetists would. Bring the emergency department up to what would be in line with a, a model three hospital.
11: Um, look, I, I'm not an emergency physician, and I but I do know enough, and I've learnt enough in the five or six years that I've been uh, at meetings with colleagues in Navan to realise that the physicians and surgeons in Navan are really put to the pin of their collar every weekend, every night, trying to do 21st century medicine and surgery. In a sort of a 20th century setting, hmm. you know, when I mean, look, my I've learned. I, I have to tell you this. Um, you know, the medicine was a lot simpler when I qualified. Hmm. But nowadays, to provide for critically ill patients, you need a whole raft of
4: really sub-specialty mm. things
3: you know if and, you're and there, 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 there's a lot of there's a lot of brilliant things uh, uh, about health science and how it's progressed uh, and one of them is the expertise of paramedics but there's a shortage of ambulances and there's a long distance for a lot of patients who'll be traveling to Drogheda. would you be concerned that some people will end up sicker or perhaps uh, in a, a worse situation uh, without uh, trying to overstate things uh, on the road to the hospital
11: I don't believe that's a likelihood. I think the reason that you know family doctors and hospital doctors are have come to the conclusion that we need to take this step is that it's more likely that if people are inappropriately delayed uh, at a a quasi-emergency department in Navin, uh, that they won't get access to the service. And we were talking here about uh, consultant radiologists who can remove clots from your lung or your renal Mm. artery, who can stop bleeding from your brain. Um, That has to be available on site. We're talking about people who can treat complex infectious Mm. diseases. We're talking about people who can treat... uh, Damage to blood vessels. You know, there is. Let, no let's say, let's to
3: say, you've,
11: uh, I, if you'd allow me, to finish, Michael. Just to, mm, so yeah. I just lay out that you know I'm trying to answer the question mm. about would a few additional surgeons and emergency physicians make a difference. The point is, they need to be backed up by all of these other people. We need mm. to create the regional hospital that both you and I and Pat mm. and Damien English and all of the other uh, politicians would like to see, but that's not going to happen in time to prevent people being put at risk.
3: OK, fact, but what are, what, 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 what are the knock-on consequences? Let's say you've got a, a clot on, on the brain, yeah. you're taken to yeah. the lurs, uh, yeah. And uh, you'd imagine that that would be such an emergency, the ambulance will arrive quickly and you'll be taken there as quickly as possible, regardless of how long that travelling time is. That's already happening. But that ambulance I- I- is being used uh, and it means that for a, a minor or a, a less serious problem, that... Uh, there won't be an ambulance available for people. If people are waiting 30 or 40 minutes now because they're not prioritised, will that turn into an hour or an hour and a half?
11: No, well, if I may say, I think the logic is inverted there. Um, Yes, you know, reconfiguration... Causes challenges and it may cause, it may move bottlenecks around, but the fact is, it doesn't change the fact that it's still necessary. Uh, we have to find solutions for, for the, the capacity in primary care, mm. we have to find solutions for the ambulance service, but these can be done. But these problems can be addressed when we know what the direction of travel okay. is. This sort of dithering that's been going on about okay. safety at Navan for 10 years is just not uh, helping anybody. Okay, we but, need to but move on and then find the solutions.
3: Okay, but you, you, you do need to. Uh, build up uh, the service around a change like this and I I don't know but I haven't heard or seen any evidence uh, that there'll be additional ambulances available to the region. Perhaps that's different and perhaps uh, Dr Colin Henry will be able to explain that to us when he talks to us on the programme tomorrow. Uh, There is another issue though, is there not, that if you're taken to Drogheda uh, and uh, you require surgery uh, and we spoke about this uh, yesterday uh, with Mr Jerry McEntee uh, what happens afterwards when you're discharged and your follow-up appointments, they're going to have to take place in Drogheda as well this is not just going to be a case of being brought to Drogheda in uh, the case of an emergency but it's going to lead to this ongoing and, and sometimes uh, protruded period of time in follow-up care
11: um, look, I, 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 I'm sure there are some issues around convenience, and there are practical difficulties about space for outpatients. But you know, we are already seeing uh, hospital consultants uh, in the matter seeing their patients in Navin now instead of patients having to go to Dublin. I mean, the, the Navin Hospital, mm. and I, I think this is the thing i I'm really most anxious to get across, if I may, Michael. You know, there is a there is obviously a, a distress about the pressures on the health service nationally, not mm. just in County Mead. And there has been a tendency to conflate this proposition with the <coughs> crisis in healthcare more mm. generally. Uh, and to tend to say that Closing what really isn't an ED as it stands but is called an ED in Navin is the same as closing the hospital far from it. Navin has gone from strength to strength and it will, after this change, be an even greater resource to the people of County Mead and mm. by freeing up um, the quasi-emergency department resources, I think we'll be able to repatriate patients from acute care in Dublin hospitals, mm. uh, and we'll be able to provide more outpatient services locally. I think convenience could be addressed that way, but I'm not... I, I, I think, you know, obviously people are now wargaming what are the possible outcomes of this change, and undoubtedly there will be challenges and and wrinkles to be ironed out, but they're only practical difficulties and and they can easily be solved. You know, we've seen what the HSE can do when it puts its mind to it. When it came to COVID, when it came to our uh, community hubs Mm. for COVID, we had delivery within a space of about 4
3: weeks. Sure. Of, uh, and that has to be complicated services and and
11: a whole new way of working and I, I Forgive
3: me for interrupting yes, you again but the sorry. time the time the time is just out now, I do apologize it's just the nature of radio interviews with Dr Maguire uh, but I I think uh, you made the point that I was making yourself in a very different way consultants from the matter will see their patients in Navan. The aftercare, the outpatient appointments will take place in Navan if the patient uh, is closer to Navan. if they're living closer to Navan than they are to the Matter. That's because the Matter uh, and Navan are part of the Ireland East Hospital Group uh, and that's the problem with taking people to Drogheda they're not part of the Ireland East Hospital Group so uh, people will still have to go to Drogheda and you're talking about people who don't have cars <laughs> who there, isn't, there, there isn't a bus uh, for a lot of people and so on
11: well look I, I think there are, there are difficulties I'm not going to underplay them but you know we're a small country with a small population the distances are not great if you if you compare us to, to other places uh, I think these are things that are not insurmountable.
3: Okay we leave it there as I say our, our time has run out but thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, and uh, uh, for taking the time to make those arguments with us on the programme. Dr. Neil Maguire is uh, the chair of the Mead Faculty of uh, the ICGP, that's the Irish College of General Practitioners.
1: Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM.
3: Uh, as you've been hearing, uh, there's some optimistic uh, news uh, from uh, the ESRI, which is uh, forecasting uh, the economy to grow at 6.8% in terms of GDP this year, 4.8% in 2023. That's the good news. The bad news is that uh, we're looking at uh, a big drop in living standards uh, for uh, most of us. uh, The biggest, in fact, they say, since uh, the financial crisis of 2008. Of course, that won't impact on some, particularly uh, those top-earning civil servants who are to get a, a pay increase of between 10 and 15%. Uh, which is pay restoration, which will come into play from next next week. Let's speak uh, to Labour's spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash, a TD for Loud and East Mead. And thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. In some cases, those pay increases will uh, amount to up to €20,000 a year. Uh, nice money if you can get it. Uh, but there's a, a lot of begrudgery uh, uh, against this. Uh, are you opposed to it?
0: I thought it's begrudgery. I mean it it's it's and you set out the context um when you opened uh, the, the item, uh Michael, do uh, I thought it's begrudgery, but I do think it, it jars. With people who are struggling at the moment, uh, you put it in context there, I mean inflation is near eight percent. Uh the S right's on good news that the economy is 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 booming, um, at least as far as the data is concerned, and you know, we can see certain sections of society and certain sectors, economic sectors doing very, very well if sure. Working in a foreign direct investment company, you may have seen pay increases of 5 to 10 percent in excess of that in some ways, but the the average wage increase over the next year, according to ESRI, is going to be about four to four and a half percent. So there's a big gap there, um, and people will feel their incomes even more stretched. And as you rightly point out, I mean, this is back to the territory of 2008 2009 when people felt such a very significant drop in their incomes. And we all remember how difficult a period that was for the country when. We experienced economic crash and then the the, the pressure on the public finances that led to the austerity measures introduced uh, back in Mm. the late 2000s and early 2010s. So where are we now? But this is a deal that
3: goes back to 2017, as the government has been pointing out. Labour signed up to that deal, as everybody did. Uh, And it is money that uh, was cut from these civil servants that has been restored. Surely that's fair play.
0: Yeah, no, and there's a, there's a point of equity here uh, and any trade unionist who's listening in will understand that a deal is a deal um, and there is no financial emergency anymore. And remember this controversial legislation was first introduced like in 2009-2010 t- uh, by the, the late Brian Lennon to uh, you know, cut public expenditure in the context of the financial emergency we had there. You know, There's no argument now to say that there is a financial emergency and that legislation has always been vulnerable and open to legal uh, attack, especially over the last few years as economies have been doing very, very well. And this really was signalled back in 2015 that, look, you know, on the basis that the um, financial emergency is ending, um, a commitment was made many, many years ago that once the emergency ended, that pay restoration would be applied to everyone, and, and jarring and all as it is, that's what's going to happen. This was provided for in the 2017 legislation, and I recall Michael um, back in the day um, when attempts were made, for example, yeah. in, in 2011, to consider, you know, if the then government could cut the rather large pensions of ministers, for example, who were responsible for governing the country uh, and responsible for the policies that led us to the economic crash that we experienced in 08, 09 and problems into the early 2010s, if pensions could be cut. And the advice was very clear from the Attorney General at the time. Uh, You can't simply decide to cut one person's pension and, and not another's. Mm. Okay, and, and that's a, a, an important legal principle to, to reflect on. Jarring and all as that is, we are seeing now a commitment that was made a number of years ago to all public servants, whether they're hospital consultants mm. or hospital porters, that. Pay restoration would be experienced at some point in time. And pay restoration was first experienced by those who are in lower middle incomes, and that was a principle that we established back in 2013, that when the economy did improve, that the first people to feel the benefit would be those who are on lower middle incomes in our, in our, in our public services. Now it's the turn of hospital consultants, uh, Supreme Court judges and so on, about 4,000 public sector workers in total. And I think we need to look at this, Michael, I think, in the context of two things. One is the squeeze on people's incomes and living standards, arising uh, from the cost-of-living crisis we're experiencing at the moment, but also the collapse of the public sector pay talks yeah. uh, just a few days ago. Now, if you're a you know, a lower-paid or middle-income public servant, remember 61% of all health workers, if we're talking about hospital consultants there, and the very top end of the income distribution uh, in the health service, if we're talking about health workers, uh, you know, 61% of all health workers earn... Uh, under forty-one and a half thousand euros. That's the median point, the midpoint of all incomes in Ireland. So I'd say that's a, that's not even an average. It's that's the midpoint. That's the yeah. median uh, of income. So what, saying, what kind of an okay.
3: increase do you believe they should get?
0: Well, um, the last thing I'm going to do is to <laughs> okay. put any additional pressure okay, Michael and yeah. my trade union colleagues yeah. when they're hoping to enter, re-enter negotiations, if uh, an improved offer can be okay. the okay. table. There's an interesting... It's better than the 2.5% per year that Michael McGraw left on the table last week. Okay, and uh, the government has said they'll go back into
3: those talks. There's a, an interesting survey in uh, the Irish Daily Mail today, not sure if you've seen it, Uh, It's an Amoric Irish Daily Mail survey and it says that 9% of people have faith that the coalition can tackle inflation crisis. And the paper says it's a shocking survey because four out of five people believe that the government will fail to fix the soaring cost of living. I I, I I can't understand what's shocking about that. I mean, I, I don't believe the government can tackle the cost of living or inflation for that matter, but I don't think any government can tackle inflation as things stand because there's so many factors out of the government's control no matter who is in government.
0: Well, that's right to an extent um, and there's no government anywhere in the world that can, uh, you know, introduce measures that will absorb all of the impacts uh, of inflation that people are experiencing at the moment. But, what they have failed to do is properly target the resources that we do have at those who need the most. Why do I say that? Uh, I mean, the signature um, measure that was introduced a couple of months ago. And by the way, it took them four months from the announcement of the introduction of the measure to the actual implementation of it. Was a 200 euro off all electricity bills. So, if you're a hospital consultant, it's going to be on an extra 20 grand. Uh, in, in, in a couple of months' time, uh, a year, or if you are uh, the lower-paid hospital porter, you still got the €200, euro regardless of, mm. of what you're... In, in, or the
3: of. TDs um, who had their pay restored, Tony and Loud is reminding us.
0: Yeah, well, you know, mm. uh, I'm a trade unionist, and uh, as I said, I'm not shirking away and showing away from that principle of, 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 of equity. I mean, what do we want? Uh, people who are independently wealthy who are running for public office, running for the council, running for, you know, the doll, running for the shandles. That That's, that's, that's mm. that, that, whatever point that gentleman makes, that, that's fair enough and it's valid to have that view. Now, I'll say this though, what do we need to do now? What we need to do is actually target the resources that we have at the moment at those in need the most and that's why we're calling for a summer bonus um, equivalent to the Christmas bonus.
3: A uh, welfare bonus.
0: A yeah. uh, social welfare bonus, mm-hmm. exactly, mm-hmm. Uh, which was given in additional weeks payments to help people to make ends meet. What we're calling for as well is a one euro uh, increase immediately on the national minimum wage. The Low Pay Commission report will be out in the middle of July. We can't wait till the 1st of January for an increase to the minimum wage. And we need now to move to a real living wage earlier than the government uh, is, 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 is allowing for. Um, to you know, ensure that people who work hard for a living, particularly those with the lower end of the income, just distribution, are able to make ends meet. There's two other things, Michael, Mm -hmm. that I think government really should consider. The European Commission, and this kind of came under the radar uh, to some extent um, over the last couple of months, in May, the European Commission had said very clearly that uh, countries like Ireland and Cyprus, uh, and I say Ireland and Cyprus because there's a reason for that, uh, could consider the introduction of uh, energy uh, uh, price caps. And the Commission said that because uh, both Ireland and Cyprus are the only countries that aren't actually currently on the main uh, European Union uh, uh, grid. Um, So consideration could be given by government and the regulator who's asleep at the wheel in my view uh, at this moment in time and doesn't really properly understand I think uh, the um, power that they have to actually introduce uh, caps on energy prices in the context of an emergency, mm. we could actually introduce caps on energy prices. That could be considered by the regulator and by government. Okay. That would be a real meaningful mm. measure. But also as well as a little known piece of legislation, yeah. I've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks, uh, called uh, the 2007 Consumer Protection Act. And two three sections of that act provide for measures that government can introduce to actually control prices in the event of an emergency. Those measures were provided for in the 2007 act. They have never been used. And we will now see the Consumer and Competition Protection Authority brought into an Orochus Committee in in the next couple of weeks based on a call I made to actually go through this issue and to better understand why these measures are. Very good. Okay. There's a lot of things government can't do are not doing at the mm. moment, and we can't wait till
3: the budget in October. Okay, interesting. Thank you indeed, uh, as always, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. That's the Labour Party spokesperson on finance, Jed Nash, who's a TD for Louth and Eastmeath.
1: Michael, Michael Reid on,
3: on LMFM. Yeah, the Dáil yesterday debated a motion on respite care that was brought forward by the Independent Group. The
12: motion is pretty. It, it's pretty basic, really. It's, it's recognising that we've signed and ratified the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And we ratified it back in 18. Um, it's highlighting that we've not yet signed the optional protocol to that convention, uh, making Ireland just one of three European country, member states to have taken no action. I'm noting our obligations under that convention, which I'm sure, Minister, you're very aware of. And then it further notes the unacceptable number of people and waiting lists for uh, essential respite services. I'm not going to read this out. You've read it, and you're not going against it. So you're accepting it, I presume. And what we're really calling for here is a focused audit. So we're calling on the government to immediately reinstate our uh, make sure that all respite bids that were there before COVID are now functioning. Along with that, undertake a comprehensive audit of respite services. I come back to the fragmented nature of that of the services that I'm asking the government to audit. And part of that audit should establish the level of provision of respite services and rented accommodation.
3: And that's independent TD, Catherine Connolly, who sponsored uh, that motion. Let's speak uh, to Catherine Cox, who's Head of uh, Communications and Carer Engagement with Family Carers Ireland. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks, as always, for joining us on uh, the program uh, this morning catherine Connolly was right the government did it accept or at least they didn't oppose her her motion uh but uh, it, it is a little bit worrying isn't it uh, when there's so much consensus as there was yesterday everybody in an agreement but there's so many problems
6: absolutely thanks for having me on michael um and look at this is something i suppose that family cares ireland have been looking for for quite a number of years um, we have always highlighted how important respite is in terms of preserving and improving the well-being and quality of life for family carers. They need that break from their caring role, and it's vital for the family carer and the person being, caring for, being cared for. Um, and look, this requires a number of things, and I think, first of all, we, we need to look at... The fact that family carers have no legal entitlement or right to even one day respite in the year. So the first thing we call for is that every family care, every full time family care should have a right to a minimum of 20 days respite per year. And that needs to be put into legislation. Secondly, and again, it's what um, uh, the deputies called for yesterday. We need an audit of existing respite beds in this country. We know for a fact that the HSC don't have those records. In fact, when they were asked with regards to respite provision, the answer was there is, centri- there is no centrally maintained waiting list for respite services. However, the local HSE areas are aware of the need and requirements in their areas. That is simply not good enough. So we need a register a full audit of respite and the gaps in respite right across the country and only then can we plan for the future needs and address the waiting list
3: um, do and do we know third, sorry, oh, sorry go Michael. ahead no, no go ahead you just, have a third point
6: i was going to say mm. the third point which is really important is we need investment obviously mm. funding is required and in that needs to be in the region of 20 million per year at a minimum in order to address the waiting list and reinstate the beds that have been closed also over the pandemic so there is a real crisis uh, for carers in this country at the Mm. moment and people with disabilities not only in respite right right across across the services but particularly those gaps in respite.
3: Okay I, I was just going to ask you about the beds closed. In lieu of that audit do we know how many beds were closed and remain closed as a result of the pandemic?
6: Again it is so difficult to get that figure. We have asked for that. I know the deputies all spoke about it yesterday, but no one seems to have that figure as to how many have been closed and haven't been reopened. So that is a really difficult figure to get. I don't know whether they have it or whether it hasn't been um, released, but it is very Mm. difficult to get a a, a clear figure on that. But we know before those those beds were ever closed, there weren't enough beds to meet the demand. So the Mm. fact that some remain closed put so much
3: more pressure on the system as well. Here's a a figure that shocked me, uh, that Catherine Connolly uh, raised yesterday uh, as part of her contribution. Now, it goes back to 2017. I assume that these are, are the latest figures or the most recent available. But she said that one in four people with an intellectual disability and living at home with family, including only one third of adults, received any form of respite and the allocation to cover that service is 16 to 20 million a year
6: yeah and look that is the thing and i'd say that figure is higher as you said that was 2017 bearing in mind we've gone through a pandemic you know, people are living longer. We've um, an ageing population, so I would imagine that figure is higher. Mm. I know we did our own research amongst carers um, during COVID, um, and found that over 50% of carers had no access to respite. So this this is really critical. And you know, it was pointed to yesterday denying that those types of interventions just builds up more cost down the road because Mm. more and more family carers will not be in a position to continue caring if they don't get the breaks and the support and the respite that they need so it's very difficult uh, it's going to cost far more
3: it must be very difficult for people and they must be just simply worn out
6: it is, and look, on top of respite day services shut down, the all day services have haven't to reopened to full capacity either. And then you have, you know, parents of children, young adults, fighting for support in their schools, fighting even for school mm. places for their children, for special classrooms, for special, um, you know, SNAs. It's like. Everything is a battle, is a fight for family care. From the moment the person they care for gets a diagnosis, actually even fighting for that diagnosis, then they're fighting for intervention, support, and it just goes on and on and on. And, you know, we, we, sat, we read before a, an Oireachtas Committee recently, if you look at the carers allowance even, it's €224 Euro per week. Only one in three family cares get it because it's means tested. Get the PUP the pandemic payment was set at 350 because it knew people couldn't live on less mm. yet family carers are expected to live on less so we need to completely overhaul how we support family carers in this country the, the payment that they get should be payment for work that they do work that should be valued and recognized in our society in our community at a minimum three hundred and fifty euro, the same as the pandemic. And on top of that, they should absolutely have access to respite and the supports that they need. And I welcome and I you know thank Marine Harkin and the independents, Catherine Connolly, who brought uh, the proposal to government yesterday. And while everybody nodded and said, Yes, they agree to all of that, we need action. You know, we need this to be addressed. It we listen to them all saying how great carers are how they recognise support them Mm. now we need action as I
3: said there was a a, a consensus uh, which uh, Mm. you could be cynical about Catherine I've run out of time thanks for your time thanks for joining us Catherine Cox is the head of communications and carer engagement with Family Carers Ireland that's our programme for today God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right
2: here on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hey, it's Danny
7: Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff. Shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods.